Welcome to the AfroTalent Accelerator podcast brought to you by Theofane Dima. Embark on an inspirational journey as we delve into the lives of Africa's foremost visionaries. Together, we'll explore the strategies, tactics, and mindsets that fuel businesses across the African continent. From funding techniques to investment insights, we're here to empower your entrepreneurial aspirations in Africa and beyond. We have the privilege of hosting a remarkable guest today, and that is Robert Alahadev. Robert, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's our pleasure to have you on the show, and we are really happy that we could make it uh, for this appointment. So, Robert, you are a force of positive change at the intersection of finance, education, and community empowerment. With a wealth of experience spanning over a decade in the finance and insurance sectors, you currently serve as uh, the CEO of Jackfruit Finance, and you are as well the co-founder of this venture. Um, in a nutshell, from my understanding, Jackfruit Finance is a pioneering company that leverages cutting-edge technology to make affordable financing solutions accessible to educational institutions and students across all income levels uh, in Africa. But um, if I'm not mistaken, you are concentrating now on Kenya. So did I get it correct? Yep, that's absolutely correct. Affordable oh, finance. Great, great, great. So before we actually unpack a little bit more on this venture on exactly your vision and what you guys are doing there. So I just want to set a little bit context and if you could a little bit present yourself, who is Robert? And I we just want to know also a little bit uh, what was actually going through your mind when you decided to embark on this journey of jackfruit finance? Sure. So yeah, I mean, as you can probably hear, I grew up grew up in London, uh, but my family's actually from Zimbabwe originally. So there was always like a strong draw to move somewhere on the continent. As you touched on, I spent the first sort of eight or nine years of my career working in London in sort of finance insurance space, and then basically took on a role to go and restructure an educational NGO in rural Uganda, which was as bad a bigger shock as a, as I think you could have to the status quo when I was walking around London wearing a suit. And then suddenly I was in a rural community in Uganda, but it was a good wake up. Uh, and it was exactly what I wanted. When I was in Uganda, I started to understand what is actually going on on the ground in the education space in these different communities and how the communities have set up locally started, locally founded schools, which essentially are mini startups, but in the education space and how difficult they find it to access affordable financing. So I mean, I visited like 300 schools in, in rural Uganda over the course of 2019 and then came to Kenya, spent a couple of years working like the tech startup world, which was a new experience for me and, and certainly showed me what technology can do. Um, and then, yeah, started Jackfruit Finance just over two years ago because the passion, my passion from Uganda and the education space and, and trying to change the status quo was still just lingering day to day. I was visiting schools, the same problems existed, and I just really wanted to help change it, but help change it through a business solution, not an NGO yeah, type I mean, I totally understand, And I really wanted to, first of all, you know, give you a, a thumbs up being able to actually make this move, uh, living from this big corporate world, you know, in the heart of London, uh, their daily life from five, nine, uh, walking in cert, you know, <laughs> I mean, that's the picture which we actually, yeah, that, that's what that, many people are aspiring for, right? The young Africans, but you're actually making the, the cultural movement. So really thumbs up for it. And yeah. So, but uh, you actually, uh, in your journey, what I realized is you've traveled a lot and across a lot of African countries, you named a few already. So uh, in your experience until now, before setting the journey of Jackfruit Finance, you are actually involved in a lot of other uh, startups. 
So tell us, uh, Robert, uh, what, how is it actually to make business in Africa, to invest in Africa? I mean, it's, it's just, it's so exciting, honestly, would be my first word. Like if I take, if I compare, I, I can only compare what I knew in my life in London versus Uganda versus Kenya. And it went London, like everything was much more structured. It's much more systemized. And, and as a result, I think there's a lot less opportunity. Certainly when, even when I was in rural Uganda, it's just everyone starting things everywhere and being excited about getting on, doing their own venture. Uh, and, you know, that was at like the micro level. And then I come to Nairobi and you're immediately thrust into this ecosystem of people trying to change things and create new ideas. And some of them are good, some of them are bad. And, and everyone just like gets around a table and talks about it. But I, I mean, I have loved it. This is Kenya is home has been now for, for a while and I hope will be for a very long time in the future. The thing when people ask me why one of the reasons I love living here and one of the reasons I've made this my home is no one, no one will accept the status quo with their work. They, everyone you talk to is either passionate about their work or they're going to change it, which is a definitely a very different mindset. And I think it cultivates ideas. It generates new, new solutions to problems and, and people start things quicker. I, if I look at London Rob versus, who I, versus Kenya, I don't think I would have started this business without being thrust into this like, sure, exciting sure. environment. I totally understand. And how has been the acceptance for your venture in the community where you are? People get it. I mean, I think that's the key is like, Education is a priority for everyone globally. Every single person who's either been through education or has had the privilege to go through education, especially when I consider my the privilege that I had growing up, um, or they're a parent trying to give their child the best possible education they can, they can give their child. So every single person understands education. Everyone has looked at schools or been in schools. So it's very familiar. I think for everyone, I've, it's been, it's been a very high level of understanding, excitement and acceptance that doesn't necessarily connect directly with how easy it has been to fundraise for many other reasons, uh, which I'm sure we can dive into. But I think so far people have loved what we're doing. We are truly trying to unlock affordable financing that is, that is beyond anything else, like really clear. So you don't have to be a financial expert to understand the product that we're offering. And I, and I think that perhaps sometimes sets us apart. Yeah, I mean, uh, Robert, you uh, are really uh, renovating, uh, even though you said it's just like, you know, living in such a community where uh, the needs are kind of really, uh, uh, you can really realize immediately what the need of the people are. Uh, on the other hand, it's still kind of innovating what you're actually bringing on the market because uh, so many people haven't thought about it before or so many have thought about it but didn't want to embark on this journey. Uh, maybe because of the hardships or the realities in the community, the realities uh, I mean, in the country, uh, the way the people accept such ventures. So in your own point of view, uh, like looking at it a little bit globally, how do you think the fintech uh, market, the fintech industry in Africa is actually doing? Kenya is one of the big players, actually. So is that one of the reasons, first of all, why you decided to settle in Kenya? I mean, you gave a, a couple of cultural reasons before. Uh, looking at it in the global aspect of it all, like the fintech industry, what do you think is in Africa actually as challenges in this industry? And what do you actually think maybe could uh, still uh, be uh, optimized? So, I mean, I think that we're definitely still, it's still in like uh, an ecosystem that's developing and figuring out exactly where it slots. 
and how you go from ideation through to startup through to actually exit. And obviously the big question on everyone's mind is constantly like how do investors get their money out now? Um, and I think that's the piece that hasn't quite been figured out. At the end of the day, like all the fin, so long as a fintech is solving an actual problem on the ground that isn't that is an African problem, that is a problem that truly exists and isn't just a problem that should it, that you would expect to see. Then I think there's a lot of players doing a lot of good things. I do think also you'd sometimes see solutions that are more designed around familiarity for an international investor as opposed to designing a product around a local problem mm-hmm. that needs a solution. Um, and I think that will become less and less of a point to, of discussion as the ecosystem continues to develop. And there are more and more investors who are actually based on the continent who understand the problems and would spot someone who's just trying to pitch a solution to like an international yeah, sure, LP. Sure. I, I, mean, f- I fully understand. And I mean, I can really resonate to what you're saying. Um, in this uh, podcast, what we're actually trying to always put on is the experience of the founder and the experience of you bringing the venture uh, to life. So I just want to ask a little bit some concrete uh, questions now, like really from practical experience, how was it out at the beginning when you settled? How did you start building your team? What are the things which we're looking for? For example, what are, first of all, maybe your first hires? I suppose there's different stages, aren't there? Because you're at the very beginning when you're completely bootstrapped and, and you're just trying to have enough capacity within the company to take get that initial proving data points. And we, we at the very beginning, essentially, were just hiring parents <laughs> because what we wanted was we wanted... So my co-founder builds all the tech, like he designs all the products. So there's a big, there's an enormous value add to having a technical co-founder who can who can run the product side um, and free me up um, because in the early days, especially, so much of it was just focused on building those investor relationships, starting to get people excited about what we're doing. The early hires were just the people from the communities that we were trying to serve. And that's always been really, really important. We're trying to connect the technology that we've built to underwrite a school with um people on the ground who know the school themselves because all it's not a the 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 job on the ground is a very relationship-based job the technology is trying to fill the gap from a like um technicality like finance background kind of kind of piece so we at the beginning and still to this day rely heavily on the people from the community who are parents who understand the schools in those communities who know what a school in that community should look like and also have the networks within which they can check on a school. So at the beginning, that was the focus. As we we sort of spent the first 12 months in like a build, test, learn, adjust phase. Uh, and we learned a lot very quickly, hard learnings, which also taught us a lot, a lot as founders. Uh, but they're crucial looking back and pretty painful to go through. And then we went into the period which kind of, which was really more my background, which is like the corporate world of trying to create systems and structures you know, legal, finance, head of operations, like really trying to systemize the whole thing. And I think that's been the benefit of my experience versus Max, my co-founder's experience. Like he is a startup guy. He wants to build and break things really, really quickly. And I want to move super slowly and have systems and structures and audit trails everywhere. And we found a very good meeting in the middle which I think has been a huge piece to our success, um, which is why now we, we've got a very, quite a quite a top heavy organization, although we are breaking even oh, on a month on month basis. So it's a top heavy organization that is also making money and creating significant positive change in the, in, in the communities that we're working. So we're trying to do a bunch of things at the same I mean, time. Um, sorry. 
slightly congratulations first question. of all on your breakup and, and if i may ask if you're comfortable sharing uh, how long did it last for you to attend this point of uh, breaking so i mean we really we really launched formally in oh. like november last year so we grew from like 10 schools uh where we were providing financing to 136 schools which is where we're at today so quite a short period of time ultimately i think a lot of that was a lot of the ability to grow quickly was based on all the work mm -hmm. that came before that so as, a, as an organization we're two years old from like a, from a launch date, oh, it's really I November. Mean, it's really, really marvelous. And I went through the venture again and I realized that uh, more than 90%, if not all, your employees, they are from the local community. I mean, they are locals from Kenya. I think it's a really important thing to be totally upfront about. I am a foreign founder. Max, my co-founder, is foreign. Like, it's a pretty bad starting point from a diversity standpoint, but it also focused our minds in very fast and very immediately. And also ultimately, like we, we had an idea as like mm -hmm. the, the generalists, but we needed mm -hmm. like the local experts for, in, from a talent standpoint to actually execute in their specific areas of expertise. So like legal, finance, mm -hmm. operations, et cetera. You can't expect someone who, isn't, who hasn't been through schools in Kenya yeah. to understand schools in Kenya. So it would never yeah. make sense to, <laughs> to be hiring. Yeah, but Robert, that, uh, I talent. really find it amazing that you think this way because this is not how, that's the mentality of many people outside of, uh, of this country. <laughs> the mentality is always like, okay, we're coming, we have the knowledge and we want to impose everything. On I think there's an interesting differentiation. So for me, like coming into Uganda, for example, I had grown up in a very privileged environment in the UK where mm -hmm. education is free for all. So then I come into an environment where it's very much not the case and capacity is incredibly low, quality is incredibly low, or quality varies enormously. I should mm -hmm. I take back my, my low point, but... The variation is huge and also the visibility is very low. So it immediately stood out to me as something that was very different to my my background and where I was. So it immediately stood out to me as something that should be changed. I've had ch chats with friend, Kenyan friends and things and they're like, especially at the beginning when we were just starting out, they were like, yeah, but that's just the way it is. <laughs> so do you see what I mean? Like for me, it's like the coming together of like my background and then local expertise and talent to actually execute, I think is is what is the foundation of, of why yeah, things sure, are going so sure, well sure. right now. Um, you, you may mention, uh, I mean, you are from the financial background, so we generally uh, um, more or less are always interested in knowing a little bit the funding aspect of the ventures. And from your side, I just presume that with your financial uh, background, it has not been that a great deal finding investors or has your venture been financed from your own capital or uh, if you're comfortable sharing, of course. Yeah, of course. I mean, one thing I will say is like we are completely open book about everything. I think the, it's crucial that businesses create trust with investors and people who are looking at them by just being transparent about what we're doing. So there's been a really, really core ethos within the organization that I will always drive. So at the beginning, like it was my capital. Uh, I liquidated all of my savings to lend to the first, I think, 10 schools to run pilots. Um, and I had the privilege of having savings that I could liquidate to do that. Then we raised like a small round, not friends and family. I have a huge nervousness around <laughs> taking friends and family capital I believe it just increases the pressure. So if you can avoid it, you should. But I raised from kind of CEOs and local business leaders kind of here in the ecosystem who... If you want to work directly with the AfroTalent Accelerator team and receive personalized coaching or feedback on your investment project in Africa, don't hesitate to reach out to us today. Apply now on our website at afrotalentaccelerator.com 
or send us a direct email at info at effortalentaccelerator.com. Join our community and be part of the movement driving Africa's entrepreneurial success stories. Most of what we were suggesting, perhaps they were donating money already to schools and instead directed some of that money to like mm-hmm. a startup idea um, and something that could solve at scale what they were trying to solve small scale. And then we've just, we've raised equity through some VCs, some angels, some family offices. We've raised debt predominantly from private individuals and family offices. Again, they're like the strong narrative here. It's like, it's a sort of capital mm-hmm. allocation decision where people, many people globally will allocate capital oh. to support African schools. But often that capital is not safeguarded in the way it could be and it's not maximized in the way it could be. And I believe that if you cycle that capital through many schools rather than just mm-hmm. donating it to one school, it can have a higher mm-hmm. overall impact in the long run. Sure. So we, that's kind of how we built so far. And we're now at the phase where we, we're just finalizing a facility with a commercial bank, which is a huge milestone. And we're starting to get much, much larger ticket sizes from credit providers etc because we've now got that portfolio size Mm -hmm. and we can show the performance to date you know we're getting to the point we've got the metrics to raise proper capital but doesn't i don't think it matters what your background is i think it is a slog in whatever for any like first time founder i think every single fundraising journey is an absolute mission and it's soul sucking doesn't matter where you're from probably helps sometimes Mm -hmm. depending on different backgrounds and depending on the investor you're speaking to because again, I think the familiarity of the connection you create with the investor is the foundation of how you raise money at the beginning. Because yeah. it's that trust component, and it's just how fast can you re- how fast can you get to that trust level? Whether sure. I mean, I've spoken with a lot of founders as well in the African landscape, business landscape, and most of them uh, boil down to the fact that uh, doing business in Africa, particularly Africa, it's more of uh, you know a people's uh, uh, relationship. Uh, uh, ecosystem, you know, and connections. So uh, just wanted to know a little bit more, how has the, the local government actually accept your, your, your ventures, you as a non-local founder? Have you had any barriers there? No, because I should, it's very, I mean, we work in low, low cost private okay. schools, not government schools, and we're just too small. I mean, there will be a point where we will need to sit down and engage with government and we'll be very ready to do it when they would like to to discuss what we're doing and how we can work together. I think we'll probably proactively seek that engagement before someone before we have to do it reactively because someone's surprised that we haven't already, you know, done the cur- done them the courtesy of engaging. So that time will come. But I don't think it's yet. And I think we'll yeah, be a bit okay, bigger sure. on that. Uh, I mean, at the speed at which you guys are growing, I think it's coming very soon. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I realized there's also one thing which actually placed me in the way you, you guys are structuring your investments now. Buildings of these schools, I mean, from the infrastructure point of view. Yeah. Uh, so I, I just wanted to elaborate a little bit more on the vision of Jackfruit Finance, if you could go a little bit more again for a little bit more insights to really know a little bit what you guys are driving out now. So we basically provide fully collateralized lending to schools. So we help them to build classrooms by school buses. We take collateral in the form of vehicles or land and we can lend for up to five years. So it's like a very traditional bank product, but on the front end, we use a ton of technology to essentially digitize the school. Uh, We use AI to be able to, to benchmark the school in comparison to its peers, which is more sort of tuned into looking at how would a parent look at this school that costs 5,000 shillings a term? So what's that like $35 a term as a school mm-hmm. fee price point in comparison to the other schools within that community in that area who are charging a similar amount? Because that kind of gives us, we can we can back end that into like the strength of their revenue um, collections data, et cetera. 
But the whole idea is that by being a vertical specific lender, you can bring in so many other support functions to the schools themselves. So the example that you touched on is one that I think has been humongously supportive to the schools. So like the beginning of school would come to us and they would say like, Hey, I want to build a classroom. And we'd say, show us your, show us the design as a bank would do. Um, and normally it would be like a local fundy design piece of paper sketched out. Mm -hmm. Like, this is what I'm thinking. And that was never really, it's never accurate. Ultimately, it's never maximizing the space, the learning environment, the light, like it's potentially not structurally that sound, especially Mm -hmm. if you're doing two story buildings. So we basically went and we got a whole stock set of project plans designed by an architecture firm specifically to like maximize the learning environment for children within these schools. They've also got like pre-approval at local county level and like all the legal documentation comes alongside it. So now a school where they used to have to get a design done and then they had to go get approval and they had to get legal documentation put together. So there's many other costs within that, within that process. They just come to us now and they say like, Hey, I want to build a classroom for 20 kids this age bracket, like here's the square meter, square meterage um, or the space that I'm building in. And they can just pick it from a stock, stock list. It just, it just helps massively. And then like the second step to the business that we're really, really starting to build out more and more is the visibility piece into education. So this kind of comes back to the founder journey, I suppose, that you touched on at the beginning. Like in Uganda, I was trying to find three schools to send 85 children to as part of this NGO that I was working with. And I think I visited around 300 schools to try and figure out which schools were the right schools. So the visibility piece, I think, is also a huge blocker into education and a blocker for people trying to support education. So we basically are creating a vetted network of schools, and then we have partners who work through us into our schools. They range from installing clean drinking water, doing after-school dance classes, through to like discounts on textbooks where a textbook publisher can sell directly into the schools, discounts on food and then a bunch of different ed techs as well who who are trying to figure out how to like penetrate this like private school market. So you can bring, because it's vertical specific lending, because every school looks the same at every single income bracket, they've all got classrooms, they've all got teachers, they've all got directors, they've all got, do you know what I mean? They just like, you just have to add in variance depending on the income bracket that they're serving. You can provide the same support Mm -hmm. functions to all of these schools and you can just hopefully or the vision is that we make it more and more efficient for people mm-hmm. to support education through us. Because obviously from a purely selfish standpoint as a business, the more benefits that flow through us into our schools, the stronger our overall product offering is to schools, the better our repayments, the better our growth, et cetera, et cetera. But from a non-selfish standpoint, it's also like the more supports that reach the harder mm-hmm. to reach schools in rural settings and in the middle of like an informal settlement or slum. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of, yeah, sure. Where are we going? I try and compare your model a little bit, as you mentioned before, with uh, the bank, traditional bank model. And one of the problems which uh, banks or financial institutions face in Africa, and or, I would say in most African countries, is the possibility, the collateral possibility to follow, this follow up, you know. And in your loan, uh, you have two models, if I'm not mistaken, where one where you actually require collateral and the other one where uh, um, there is no collateral. I mean, I think it's more or less in the amount uh, which uh, the, the, the schools are willing to loan from, uh, lend from you guys. So, did you guys already have some, yeah. you know, issues, uh, you know, throughout this journey, uh, maybe with the collateral loans to maybe recovering that kind of stuff, you know, this follow up? So, we've had a pretty incredible journey so far. Oh, cool. We've had no defaults. 
across our entire loan portfolio. So we've got a two and a half million dollar loan portfolio right now, and we've had no defaults, which sets us in a completely unique position. I think that obviously a default will come. We're a lender. Statistically, it would be impossible for us to never have a default. But we have basically, what we have done is we have completely replicated the way the banks lend. So the way they take collateral, the way they secure it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I know that's the case because A, we got someone to do it for us from a bank. And B, we've also passed due diligence with a commercial bank who was looking specifically at that. The innovation part of what we've done is the front end. It's how we use technology to digitize and how we move away from asking a director to come to a bank branch and provide all this documentation, audited financials, business plan, all this stuff they just don't have uh, versus us just going and gathering it ourselves. I have a huge amount of confidence in the repossession process when it happens, but you'll have to, we'll have to have another chat in a bit well, once that's happened sure. for me to give you like really accurate data on it. I mean, I do, I do know it works because okay. the banks do it all the time, unfortunately. Before we actually conclude, uh, I'm kind of a little bit interested just to know a little bit the, you know, the founding ecosystem, startup ecosystems in Kenya is really, really, I would say very developed in co- compared to other countries. So have you had uh, in this ecosystem, networking uh, ecosystem, do you have support from other founders, other ventures who, you know, have wanted to maybe support uh, the entire idea or support you guys through their you know, the first steps in getting to the country and establishing the business? Yeah, I mean, the, I think at the beginning, I didn't realize how strong the ecosystem is here in Nairobi. There is a kind of a running joke about like a founder support club. And it's basically a group of friends where we're all founding businesses and we're all going through the same pains at different times. And we can all just get together and have a good cry and and give each other advice on how we got through those problems. So it's been a massive support. Um, everything from like, where do you set up a hold co? Do you set up a hold co through to like shareholder agreements through to all of the like nitty gritty stuff that you don't really get so much um, and like strategy around fundraising. So the Nairobi ecosystem has been hugely supportive. Um, it helps when you're surrounded by other people who've, who've made that leap. Um, and I think what I'm trying to do now more and more is like feedback into that. So if there's anyone who's listening to this podcast and wants to start something, I'm always happy to have like a 45 minute chat and just share some insights or some brutal realities of what's ahead. Cause I think it's not, I think we celebrate all of the big success stories and we don't necessarily talk enough about how unbelievably all consuming and stressful and mm-hmm. difficult these journeys are. Cause we've got an 18 person team and they all rely on me to fundraise, to ensure they have salaries, to ensure that we can continue to grow. Like there's enormous responsibility and we've got investors who've trusted us. So, so yeah, they're, I think it's crucial to have like a network around you of people who have either done it or are doing it, ideally both. Um, and I think that's probably why so many of these like accelerator programs help right. people. So, I mean, Robert, you mentioned at the beginning, uh, you started over in Uganda and then you had to move on to Kenya. So in your journey, uh, are there maybe regrets which you have maybe uh, experience along the way, which you think maybe, okay, uh, the Roberts with the skills you have today, the experience you have today, um, are there things which you would probably have done differently? Um, <laughs> I, this comes back to my last comment. I think, honestly, I think if, if there isn't a day where I suddenly realize I didn't know something, it's normally an anomaly. There's been every single day truly is like a new piece of learning. If it's not like a founder, the, a funder that you haven't heard of, et cetera. Like the big, so I was actually trying to think about this before this call. Um, 
And there have been some massive mistakes we've made within the business. But I think if we hadn't made them and we spent more time thinking, it would have taken us longer to get to where we are now. So like a really, like a really good example here is we started this business trying to lend to students. So the whole idea was we would lend to schools and schools would on lend to students and didn't work. We got, we got like a thousand parents on the platform, which we'd built, which where the, we would basically uh, pay the school fees at the beginning of term and then parents would pay us weekly or monthly. And we had misjudged the, the parents' revenue, essentially. Like we had come in with quite a Western mindset and we had tried to give them stability by saying you pay weekly or monthly, but really they don't mm-hmm. get paid weekly or monthly in the communities that we tried to work. Mm-hmm. So it didn't work, but maybe we could have taken a bit more time to survey more parents, but we would have then moved slower. And because we had so little funding at that point, like we didn't really have the time to move slowly. This was where like Max and his like mm-hmm. build quick and break quick worked incredibly well. So like as far as mistakes go across the course of this business, like that's definitely the biggest product mistake. But if we hadn't mm-hmm. made it, we wouldn't be here because it would have just taken us way longer to figure it out. And I mean, so I haven't really got an exact, I haven't really got a specific, huge blaring error. I've placed trust in people that I shouldn't have mm-hmm. across the course of the journey. I've always guarded against it. So it's never had massive ramifications on the business. So yeah, not yet. I'm sure something, again, maybe next time I'll have a better a better thing to say on it. But but yeah, I mean, I think it's just micro adjustments every day. And by not, by, by trying every day to re- remove any sort of pride in decisions we've made previously, um, it's enabled us to like, make micro adjustments every single day based on new data and new mm-hmm. learnings, et cetera, which has stopped us from sort of being stuck in our ways and then having to make huge adjustments I mean, I really find it really good, and especially the fact that uh, I just wanted, this is actually boiling down to my next question, you know, uh, I wanted you to give some insights, some advice to a founder out there listening to us today, or maybe someone trying to embark on a journey. Um, At the beginning, what is generally important is to start, and you optimize accordingly, and I mean, so if you have something again to share in this regard, maybe to a first-time founder out there who is... uh, in a state of ideation, for example, and wanting to really start a business, what is uh, one or two things you can share? Yeah. Um, so as you say, definitely start. Like if you don't start, then you don't learn. You can do, you can build decks to your blue in the face, but until you actually do something, you won't learn anything. I think looking back at the very, very beginning, being able, if you can hold on to an alternative <laughs> income stream just to de-stress your personal position because the the like first six months of the business are hyper exciting and it's very tempting just to immediately quit a full-time job even if you can run it on the side and I think I perhaps quit my full-time job a little bit too early um, at the time whereas I could have definitely run it on the side still just with a lot more work and a lot less sleep um, and then honestly I think back to my point just now I've M- Max Max and I have constantly discussed this over the last two years about making a decision and then if we realize we made the wrong decision just doesn't matter doesn't matter who made the decision it just matters that we get the right decision as quickly as possible so really like you often see these like big characters on stage these big founders who are like i am the visionary i know everything and i actually think that that is it that can be the death to a startup at the beginning or i mean across the course (laughs) of the life but like i think anyone who Anyone who thinks they know everything will probably kill the business. So 
really fostering that team mentality. Every person who joins the business should have an equal voice at the table because everyone has different opinions and views. And like every new team member who joins Jackfruit Finance, I sit with them, doesn't matter what level they're coming in. And I say, you have an equal voice at the table. And I truly mean it. Sometimes people don't believe me. And it's, it's taken us time to get that culture really ingrained in the business. But like, I would never want to say something and people disagree with me and them not to say mm-hmm. it because I'm the CEO because that would just hurt the business. So pride like gets left at the door. People's people's personality and identity, I think gets quite quickly tangled up in their startup. Everyone knows what you're doing. Everyone wants to hear about it. All you want to do is talk about it. And it's quite, it's you can end up sort of drinking the Kool-Aid, but I actually think the reality of it is that, is that we're going to, you're going to make mistakes every single day. And it's just all about how, how, how great. Um, I mean, those are really wise words which you're sharing out there. Um, uh, at the end, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> wisdom, wisdom, <laughs> wisdom from pain. <laughs> so, uh, Robert, uh, tell us. Uh, I mean, being a CEO, and I'm really meaning it. Uh, no matter if it's uh, a venture in Africa or wherever, um, it requires a lot of discipline, a lot of uh, time management, a lot of. You know, there are a lot of qualities which are traded behind, which the man has to really possess. Because you said it, uh, a lot of people are kind of depending on your decisions to, to have a living for themselves, for their families, and also for your potential clients who, you know, who are profiting from, from your from your idea and from, from, from your business model. So at the end of the day, you have to be a structured man. You have to be, I don't know, you have to, to, to be for yourself uh, kind of a role model. So are there routines which you have which kind of uh, make you stay that productive? Like sport has always been an enormous release for me. I'm, I love rock climbing as an example, where if you're not focused on what you're doing, which is climbing the rock, you could fall sure. off and die. <laughs> so it really focuses the brain in and, and, and turns it off of work. So I do, I, I run a lot. I do a lot of, I do a lot of sport. That's re- that is normally my like day-to-day release. And then, which I think just uses a different side to my brain. So I spend all day, talking and thinking and planning and strategizing and then you kind of have to have to switch on a different side of the brain and it's very i find it very therapeutic so those are like my weekly de-stresses and then also the biggest thing i've learned over the course of this journey is to try really really try wherever possible to not work weekends or at least condense it to a couple of hours like at a specific set time that creates a routine as opposed to just popping into your laptop on a saturday morning then going for lunch and then popping onto your laptop on a Saturday afternoon. Like it, it has led to burnout a couple of times or close burnout points, which I've, where I've seen burnout has been coming. And luckily, I mean, I've had a burnout situation in the past. I, I do know the signs and know how to like stop, but I think working weekends creates no cadence to your day to day and leaves you pretty screwed long-term. So I think it's something that we don't talk about enough. Sometimes we, uh, we'll celebrate that we're working on weekends and working late nights and things like that. And, but we, it's all about output over a, over the, a longer period of time. A friend of mine said to me at the beginning, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And I didn't listen to him. And then I burnt out. <laughs> I mean, I just hope that uh, our audience, they are really taking this value out of it. So Robert, really, thank you very much. Thank you for giving us your time. But before we actually part, um, I'd like the audience to know a little bit more about yourself, about the venture. So is there a place where we can, uh, actually uh, go to know more about what you're building actually and also about yourself yeah i mean our website has a bunch on it we've got a video that kind of if you're interested to see the kind of schools that we're actually working in check out the video it's just www.jackfruitfinance.com 
Um, and if anyone wants to reach out to me, just feel free to ping me on, on LinkedIn. Um, if you highlight, if you just let me know that you heard me talk on this, uh, it'll draw my attention. I get quite a lot of LinkedIn requests now. Um, but yeah, like happy to chat with people who are just interested or thinking of starting something. People supported me at the beginning and I think it would be remiss of me to not pay back into the ecosystem. So I am very, very happy. Thank you very much. So Raman, we're going to link every piece of valuable link, you know, the website, your LinkedIn also in the show notes and we call on the audience today to reach out to you for any valuable uh, contacts. And please don't forget to mention that you listen to uh, Robert's venture on the AfroTalent Accelerator podcast. Thank you for tuning in to the AfroTalent Accelerator podcast. Don't miss out on our upcoming episodes where we continue to bring you inspiring stories and actionable insights from the forefront of African entrepreneurship. Subscribe now to our show to stay updated on the latest and be sure to reach out to the AfroTalent Accelerator team to share your thoughts, suggestions and collaboration ideas.